y'all. Thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s-loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Kind of like diet true crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and true crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of a brutal murder, including stabbing and strangulation. Listener discretion is advised. On April 2nd, 2008, Brittany Zimmerman had just returned home to her off-campus apartment from class at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when she was brutally attacked and murdered. Despite making a 911 call during her attack, police didn't arrive on scene until 48 minutes later when her fiancé found her in their bedroom and placed another call to 911. Was the lack of dispatch the reason it took 14 years for her killer to be caught, or was it simply a case of lack of evidence? Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm -mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences and opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. Mm, That's rough stuff. Heck yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, Well, welcome to Killer Queens. Yes. We, uh, before we get into the case, we want to give a Hey Girl thanks to Beth for writing this one up. Yes, girl. Thank this you. This is her first main feed, I think. It is. And we yeah. are so lucky to have it. 
Yes. And we want to thank Katie DeYoung and Josie Stufflet. Stufflet. <laughs> Stufflet. For requesting it. Yeah. Um, yes. And Beth has been writing for us for a while. She helps with uh, some of our Patreon episodes, typically. Um, if you want bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod and get all kind of junk there. Yes. Four episodes it's a week, even. A lot of bang for your buck, honestly. A lot of bang for your buck, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is our first main feed, so we're super excited. Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, all right, should we just... Should we just do it? I think we should like launch right into it. Let's do it. Brittany Sue Zimmerman was born on November 15th, 1986 to Kevin and Jean Zimmerman in Marshfield, Wisconsin. She also had a brother named Matthew and she attended Grant and Madison Elementary Schools, Marshfield Junior High, and she graduated from Marshfield High School in 2005. She received an AP Scholar with Distinction Award upon graduating. She was a student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at the time of her death and was studying in microbiology and immunology. She had, like, so many plans. We'll get into that, but wowzers. And just so smart. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh, yeah. According to our high school guidance counselor, Liz Dostal, Brittany knew that she wanted to be a physician as a freshman, and she knew it wasn't going to be easy. And Dostal said she was a very precocious freshman girl, very concerned about her learning and picking the right courses to prepare her. Brittany was in the top 10% of her class and completed eight advanced placement courses before she graduated in 2005. She was not playing around with her education. Absolutely not. Uh, Brittany was also in the school band, the Spanish club, and she was part of the National Honor Society. She also volunteered her time at the American Cancer Society Hope Lodge. And Dostal described Brittany as, quote, bubbly and spirited. In college, she worked at the campus registrar's office for three years, and her boss, Joanne Berg, said, quote, the work ethic just oozed out of her. She always came to work with a smile. According to Berg, uh, Brittany's fiance, Jordan Gonnering, transferred to Madison to be with her. And Brittany was on the Dean's List in the fall of 2005, as well as the spring of 2006. Her MySpace page said, that is a flashback. That really Um, brings us right back to 2006, 2007. Oh my gosh, yes. So her MySpace page said, I'm a medical microbiology and immunology major at UW-Madison, hoping to graduate spring of 2009. After my BS, I plan to get an MS in public health, followed by an MD in infectious disease. Just so very driven. Very driven. I mean, and she even had time to, like, update her MySpace. I know. That takes some time. Well, of course it does. And, I mean, you got to get the font right and all that kind of stuff, but pick a new song for it. I don't know. but And if you want your background to glitter, I know. forget about it. I mean, that's a lot of work to do. You have to learn coding in your spare time. It's rough stuff. Well, and figure out, do you want to top, what, 10? Do you want to top five? Do you want to top eight? Do you want to top four? It's just a whole thing. I know, because if you get in a fight with your friend and you need to make a point, you're going to have to move them down on the list. And that's just, your hands are tied. Well, and you know what? They deserve it. They deserve to have that message received in that way if they're going to do do you dirty like that I think I mean yeah and like isn't it really funny to think that we used to rate our friends in order of importance to us? I wish I still could I'm kidding that's not true but 
yeah, it is hilarious that that was a thing. And it was just like, we were all just like, well, yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's so, I don't even know. The, like, it's, it's bold. <laughs> it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, well. Oh my gosh. And every time I broke up with a boyfriend, I changed my song to Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson. Yes. What an anthem, man. That's a good one. Or if I was feeling like really sad about a breakup, it would be like Dashboard Confessional. Right? Some brand new on there. Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then like the caption would be from a movie or like the lyrics to the song. Yep. Oh, yeah. Man, MySpace. And I've got, I miss it every day. Yeah, I like it better than Facebook for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, One of her favorite books was The Chronicles of Narnia, and her favorite movie was The Constant Gardener. Brittany enjoyed cooking, eating at different restaurants, her three kittens, Boo, Felix, and Marv, and fishing with her dad, and she was planning on getting married to Jordan in Hawaii. Her dad said of her, quote, as a young girl, she was just so kind to everybody. She never had a bad thing to say about anybody. She was the brightest girl and the most considerate person. She was the one always willing to help anybody. She literally sounds like the sweetest angel from heaven above. Like, it's just yeah. So and when we find out, quote, why she's killed, are you kidding me? I know. I just, what, ge- what gives anybody the right to take somebody's life? But what gives you the right to take somebody's life because, like, you got a little freaked out? Mm-hmm. Like, I just... Yeah. It's awful. So on April 2nd, 2008, Brittany went to campus for class and left to go back to her off-campus apartment at about 11.30 a.m. She was walking on the sidewalk near her apartment when her fiancé, Jordan, yelled to her from the balcony and then gave her a call on her cell phone. Jordan then left for class, and Brittany went inside to work on her computer from 12 p.m. to 12.18 p.m. A minute later, at 12.19... Brittany made a call to 911 from her cell phone, and the dispatcher hung up after reportedly hearing nothing on the other end. There was another call placed to 911, but it was a hang-up call. Jordan was in class from 12.05 to 12.55. So this is roughly 50 minutes of class time. And then he goes back to his apartment on his moped. And then he sees that the lock on the outside security door was broken. So he goes inside, and when he got to the bedroom, he found Brittany on the floor. He called 911 with the belief that Brittany had been shot several times, and we will hear the 911 call that he made. 911, what's the address of the emergency? 911, what's the address of the emergency? Hello? This Hello? is 911, what's the yeah. address of the emergency? 517 West Doty Street. Repeat it? 517 West Doty Street. Is there an apartment number? It's a flat. It's what? You're cutting out. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello. Okay, your phone's cutting out. Did you say upper or lower flat? Yes. Which? It's the lower flat, apartment one. Okay. Ambulance is needed. Okay, what's the phone number you're calling from, please? 715-305. 2584. Okay, what is your name? Jordan Garring. Okay, tell me exactly what happened. I just came home, the door was busted in, and my girlfriend's been shot. Okay. Stay on the phone with me. Okay? Yep. Are you with her right now? 
Yes, I am. How old is she? She is, no, she's 21. 21? Is she conscious? No, she's not. Yeah, and he said, he said that it looked like she had been shot because it was so, there was so much blood. I mean, he he couldn't tell, you know, he doesn't know what's happened. It just... Right. Absolutely. And in the 911 call, the the police department or whoever released the call, they've edited the call. So you can't hear the details because um, I'm sure I l- have listened. I think we both listened to the 911 call. What we would have heard if it hadn't been edited out would have probably been really gruesome because he's describing what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I I just feel so bad for him. Now, listen, I understand that from my understanding, being a 911 dispatcher, not the easiest job. I can't even imagine. And you've got to keep your cool and you've got to be very professional right. and kind of like, let's, you know, facts and let's make this work. And, you know, like, let's get down to business kind of thing. I just always wish because I'm a sensitive person. I always wish that they were just a little bit nicer when they're, yeah, you know, like a little bit more. I'm so sorry I'm to hear sorry. that. I'm sorry. Yes. I wouldn't make a good 911 dispatcher. You'd be, we'd be crying. Yeah. 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 It's, that's rough. I can't imagine, but. And there's yeah, a so, lot that's going to go into these 911 calls, you guys. A absolutely. Lot. We are not done talking about the 911 mm-hmm. calls for sure. But it was nearly a minute into the five-minute 911 call that the dispatcher determined that it was an emergency and nearly three minutes in for dispatch to help Jordan provide aid for Brittany. The police responded to the 500 block of West Doty Street at 1.10 p.m. This is 48 minutes after Brittany dialed 911 the first time. It was determined that Brittany had been stabbed several times, beaten and strangled, not shot. Um... The autopsy determined that her manner of death was homicide and her wounds were caused by a weapon similar in nature to one possessing a blade length from two to five inches, blade width of 1.5 to two centimeters, and with a prominent hilt. Brittany's cell phone was found in pieces and DNA, hair, blood, footprints, and fingerprints were also found at the scene. And doesn't it sound like, oh, well, this will be easy to solve? You would think so. There's a ton of evidence there. Um. Unfortunately, like we said in the intro, it takes 14 years, a little over 14 years to solve it. So just you wait, Henry Iggins. Mm -hmm. Brittany's fiance, Jordan, was never a suspect and was said to be extremely helpful with the investigation. There were a few men suspected, though. Thomas Cosgrove, Jeffrey D. Ball, Chauncey Mack, and David A. Call with Call being seen in the area on the day of the murder. And that's K-A-H-L. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's helpful to see a spelling. Um, I agree. Because when I heard it, I was like, C-A-L-L, got it. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So neighbors of Brittany's said that uh, David Call was asking residents for $40 to repair a flat tire. In one case, he actually yelled at a woman for not locking her door. But, but, But listen why he yelled at her. He basically was like, what are you thinking? You didn't lock your door because I have entered your home without your permission. And that is your fault. And she refused to give him any money and made him leave. And he's like, well, maybe you should lock your door then. Yeah, like, oh, excuse me for walking into your house and asking for money. Like, 
sir? Just because somebody doesn't lock their door does not give you an open invitation to enter it and then beg for, you know, like get mad at them because they won't give you something that you have asked for. Yeah, and then you turn around and like yell at her for ha- not having locked her door. Like, come on. The audacity. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, so the police interviewed Paul for the first time on the day of Brittany's murder. He was interviewed several times and described two men and a woman that were with him that day. And he said that the three others were running scams with him as well. He changed the details of his story and the descriptions of the other people involved over time. Um, So David Call lived about a mile from Brittany, and he had approached four people over 50 minutes asking for money that day. He walked down Wilson Street, Bedford Street, and Doty Street asking for money. And the police say that this timeline puts him at her apartment at the time of Brittany's murder. When he was brought in for questioning, he told detectives that he was asking for money to buy crack, and he admitted that he was high at the time. Um, So he's telling people, hey, I need $40. I've got to repair this tire. There is no tire at all. He's just trying to get the money for drugs, obviously. If If you walk up to somebody's house and say, can I have $40 to buy crack? People will probably say no. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, just tell me what you're going to do with it. I'm fine. I don't know. Like, whatever. If I have yeah. it, if I don't, I don't. But, um, you know, what else am I expecting him to do if he has nowhere to live? And, you know, like, I'm not going to judge him for that. But, um, but obviously, he was telling people he was doing something else. Um, he certainly wasn't doing it in a very kind way. No, he was getting very what, angry. walking into people's houses and being rude as hell. Yeah, that's really not the way to get what you want. I feel like you can catch more flies with honey. You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. Um, And detectives did notice a small cut on his hand. A few days later, Call told police that he was diagnosed a few years earlier with schizophrenia and he was no longer taking his medications. Um, Despite his timeline and witness statements, the police did not have enough evidence to make an arrest at that time. Um, It's also noted that he is a registered sex offender. So there's a lot of things that are swirling around that say, this could be our guy. Yeah. They just didn't have anything definitive right off the bat. But it is interesting that he was at her house. Yeah. And he admitted that he was at her house the day that she was brutally murdered. And we know it wasn't her fiance. I mean... Just what is the likelihood that somebody who's walking into people's houses, admittedly, without asking or permission, right, is doing that, her house being one of them, and then she gets killed? Yeah, I mean, that's quite the coincidence, and I don't necessarily believe in coincidences in this type of situation because... Like you said, I mean, he he admittedly puts himself at the at the crime scene. And not just sometime that day. I mean, they narrowed it down to he was there during the time of the murder. 100%. Yeah. I don't personally understand how that isn't enough when they've got the DNA, they've got, you know, all of these things on him. I don't, I yeah, don't it know. It seemed like they never somehow got samples from him to match with or they didn't have in the evidence at the scene was not the right type of evidence to match or it wasn't definitive enough. Like it's, 
you know, is it pop? And we'll we'll talk more about where things were as we get further in the investigation. But at this point, it seems like it's possible that maybe the DNA they had was like on the front porch or on the front door or sure, maybe not necessarily inside the home or something that you could say, you know, because you could find a fingerprint on a door and it could be the guy who came to fix your HVAC, you know? Right. He had nothing to do with it. It's just how many people touch that doorknob, how many people touch the railing on a front porch or whatever versus sure. is his blood inside the home? Or, or let's say, I mean, if there was, if it was muddy or something and then you've got a footprint outside, that could be from relatively anybody. I mean, it's not, that's not enough, but... Mm-hmm. I've heard of people and we've talked about people who have gotten arrested, tried and convicted for less. Now, I understand the everybody involved wanting to build a solid case to make sure that this is a win and not arresting the wrong person or whatever. I get that. It's just surprising to me that it took so long, but anyway. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating when law enforcement has a has this gut feeling or like knows for sure this is this is our guy, but we just can't prove it. That's really frustrating. But yeah. again, I'm like equal parts like glad that you need all the evidence, but also sometimes I'm like, just just do it, you know. Yeah, you know <laughs> but, her family, poor family is going crazy because it's like one hundred percent. You know, but I mean, there are those weird situations where, you know, things do happen. And it's like, yeah, I knocked on the door, but I didn't kill her. And yeah. and sometimes that's true, you know, so you, you do have Absolutely. to gather all the evidence. Absolutely. Well, and we talked about it last week in our mixtape, the Chino Hills Massacre. Oh, mm-hmm. where just because you were found around the crime scene next to it, whatever, and you maybe commit another offense doesn't make you necessarily right the guy who committed the murder, you know. But anyway, so the search for Britney's killer continued in the years following, and Madison police never let the case go cold. But it was years before there was any solid movement in the investigation. In 2009, police received an anonymous letter with a return address from prison. The letter indicated that the writer overheard an inmate named F.R., discussing his involvement in Britney's murder. The letter was entered into evidence. In 2010, the Zimmerman family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Dane County in regard to the 911 call, but ended up settling the case. The county agreed to contribute $5,000 to the family fund and $2,500 in attorney fees. The family said that they did not commence this action against Dane County for the purpose of recovering money, but the goal was to make sure that this did not happen to anybody else. Understandably so. Like, yeah. And they, I mean, we'll get into, we will get into the the 911 call situation a little bit later, but um, because, you know, there's a whole trial about it and everything like that. But um, essentially what happened is Brittany calls 911 and the dispatcher says it, she didn't hear anything. Right. And so she, says, you know, like, hello, hello, is there an emergency, whatever, and then disconnects that call, moves on to the next call, which was also a hang up, apparently. 
Then she moves on to another call that was waiting, takes that call. She calls the second call back because you're supposed to call them back. But she doesn't remember then after that to call Brittany back to see if she actually needed something. Mm -hmm. Brittany had called again, but hung up. Wonder why. Right. And then you and then you add on top of that. So and nobody was dispatched. The call was incorrectly logged after that. And then you have Jordan's call where he's calling. I mean, he says that when he found Brittany, she was cold to the touch, but they did. It didn't. It took three minutes for her to even register that it was an emergency. And then what? Another five minutes or two minutes for her to say, let's begin ZPR, ZPR, Mm -hmm. CPR, or I don't even know what ZPR is, but to begin I think life I think that's like saving aid. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they use it anymore, honestly. No. But mm-hmm. um, you know, me, I'm I'm a Real I like the classics. Yeah. yeah. But it took so long for her to start the process of life saving aid for mm-hmm. and Brittany. dispatching and who knows? anybody to the scene. Yeah. Absolutely 100%. I mean, Is it these possible are, if somebody had been dispatched from the get-go, could they yeah. have caught this person in the act? 100%. Or let's say, and I believe 100% that the injuries that she sustained, gruesome, brutal, totally, I mean, obviously it. she ended up losing her life because of these injuries. But sometimes seconds and obviously minutes are completely valuable. What if she had gotten an ambulance right. there right away? Yeah, exactly. We've seen, we've seen some survivors of horrific crime. I mean, Mary Vincent was almost decapitated. Mm -hmm. Like, and she survived. Like, yeah, that is possible. It's, it's heartbreaking. It is. And anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to get ahead of ourselves with thoughts. So their goal is like, in the future, we want whatever protocol is to be followed. We want there to be the correct protocol so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again because she did call 911 and she received no help. Absolutely. Yes. In 2014, DNA from a piece of Brittany's clothing was tested and matched to David Call. It matched DNA from a previous break-in he was involved in. A few months later, Andrew Scholes, a friend of David Call, was who was incarcerated at the Gilmer Federal Correctional Facility Institution in Glenville, West Virginia, told investigators that Call had confessed to killing Brittany. Skulls was serving time for illegal gun possession. On December 17, 2014, Skulls told police that he was close to Call and considered him a brother. He told police that Call had confessed to him but didn't want to provide any more information to them without a deal in place. Skulls Stand up said, guy. Right, absolutely. I know a lot about this terrible, awful tragedy that my quote-unquote brother says that he committed and confessed to me, but I scratch your back or you scratch my back. The the first one was right. I scratch Mm -hmm. your back. You scratch mine. Like, I'm not going to do anything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. How does, how, what's in it for me? And that is, forget the very least scuzzy. There's a family and friends and loved ones who need peace and who need, you never really get closure, but you know, like this is, this could be a major step forward. And, not to mention the community of Madison 
terrible. They're probably, yes, and understandably so. I mean, mm-hmm. this person was, and. Because somebody the, kicked her door down. Right, absolutely. And David Call had been admittedly just barging into people's houses before this. So if we can get whomever this is, David Call, into custody, we're mm-hmm. hopefully letting helping people sleep easier at night. Exactly, because this is somebody who society at large is in danger if he's on the streets because he's not afraid to most and he he wasn't I guess he wasn't burglarizing homes necessarily. He was walking in and asking for money, which is interesting, but it's interesting that it didn't bother him to walk into somebody's home while they were home. Usually if somebody's going to enter somebody's home illegally, they're going to wait until that person is not home. They don't want to walk in with them right there that they could see you and talk to you and and pick you out of a lineup. And I mean, that's still illegal what he did. So it's interesting that it didn't bother him to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's dangerous to have him on the streets. We know that he's doing things that are illegal and just entering people's homes. And as we see here, at some point you enter somebody's home and you get scared that you're going to get caught and you freak out. And then what happens? How many people are in danger because of that? Absolutely. And not that if he if, if he would have murdered her in a different way, different way, it wouldn't have made it any better, right? But this is brutal what he did to her. Brutal. And it was it sounds like he had a hair trigger. He was ready to take action and didn't have much to lose. No. no and then look didn't. at where we are, you know? But Skulls said, hypothetically, he broke down and told me what all happened. And Skulls was released from prison in October of that year. I in don't 2000- like, wait, hypothetically? <laughs> well, allegedly, he told me that he did it. Okay, either he did or he didn't, though. Exactly. And I get you're trying to play a game here, but like, grow up. Yeah, 100%. In 2016, Brittany's mom, Jean, sent a video message to Skulls through his parole officer asking him to speak with the police about what he knew. He said he would, but wanted something in return. Of course. Skulls responded to Jean and said, quote, after watching your video and with great consideration, I told the police I would be willing to cooperate in any and all ways that I could. And added, if the government would give my life back. This is all the government's fault. Yep. The government would only just give me my life back, which was wrongfully taken from me through no fault of my own. Then I will do the right thing. This is disgusting. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. So Skulls was asking for a presidential pardon for a 2010 marijuana conviction and a federal gun conviction from 2014 expunged from his record. Yeah, because he had a federal gun conviction He had to get a pardon from the president of the United States. Yes. No biggie. Like, this is the, if you look up the phrase, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, this is there. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. But listen to this. See skulls begging for presidential pardon. Come on. Listen to this shit, though, too. I mean, all of that is like, are you kidding me right now? But then, so he wanted his federal record cleared so that he could have his 19 guns back that were confiscated during his 2014 arrest. He just wanted all his guns back. Listen, I do you, and like you said, you you don't know unless you ask. 
but the list for him, it's like he's really shooting for the moon with these with these requests here. Like he literally thinks that President Obama is going to be like, hey, girl, um, heard we took all your guns away. Oopsies. Yeah, we're going to give those back to you. So sorry about that. Have a good day. Well, I think he has more important things to deal with. Yeah. Bold move. Let's see if it pays off. It's just, it's outrageous. So Skulls kept quiet and continued on with his life after being paroled in 2015 because he did not, apparently, he didn't get what he wanted. So nope. he didn't think, maybe I should just do the right thing here. Then on April 26, 2017, a document containing a letter from Skulls' attorney, Joseph Bugney, to a federal judge was unsealed. The letter detailed Bugney's efforts to set up an interview between Skulls and the police, and it stated that Skulls was willing to testify if Call was prosecuted for Britney's murder. However, it was also stated that prosecutors seemed indifferent to meeting him or making any deals. Okay, because remember, the only information they gave he gave them before is, hypothetically, he told me everything he did. I. It seems like they didn't really think that he was going to be able to help their case. Obviously. And like, yeah, because they're not going to meet with him. They're certainly not getting him a presidential pardon. Um, But they're also probably thinking forward, you know, you've got to put, if if you're going to use this information, you're going to need that to stand up in court and all these things. <laughs> Jailhouse informants are not, Credible witnesses typically. Juries tend to not believe them. Um, especially, can you imagine as a juror if if you're sitting in on this trial and he gets up there and testifies and you find out that he received a presidential pardon for this information? Well, absolutely. And his record expunged and all of these things, like it's the defense is 100 percent gonna be like, did you get anything in return for this? Okay, so you had you had some motive or some incentive to do this. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, it just it didn't seem like it was a big enough gamble for them to take it. No. Especially because of the outrageous request that he was making. But yeah. Hey, you guys, have you ever wondered about the backstory? Like why we call our dad Miss KB? We have gotten this question so many times. We thought we'd release a little freebie for you. So we recorded a Patreon-exclusive Q&A last year, and be warned, we were outside and there was some wind, Mm -hmm. where we answered this question, and we want y'all to have the answer even if you're not a patron. Yeah, so be sure to head to killerqueens.link slash misskb, M-I-S-S-K-B, and grab the audio. And don't forget, if you want the full Q&A or access to our entire catalog of over 450 patron-only episodes with all our regular episodes ad-free, you can join the Patreon for less than one and a half Starbucks drinks per month. I mean, that's a good deal. It's a steal. It is. It's a steal. You'll get four episodes per week from us, all ad-free, plus anything fun we do like Q&As or literally anything else. So definitely check it out. And not every tier includes every episode. Yeah, we do have different tiers, so just be sure everything's listed out there when you check it out. But in the meantime, be sure to grab your free audio about Miss KB and how he came to be called that at killerqueens.link slash Miss KB. 
Despite these efforts, an interview was never set up. And on August 5th, 2017, Andrew Scholes died from injuries he sustained in a motorcycle accident in July. He took what he knew about Britney's murder to the grave. And after Scholes passed away, Jean, Britney's mom, was devastated and said that Scholes had sworn he knew all the information the police would need. That's this poor family. I know. I mean, that's they're already devastated enough. They've lost their daughter. And it's like this dirtbag says he has the information we need to make an arrest. Dangling it in front of them. Mm -hmm. Only if you give me what I want. And then he's like, okay, well, I don't need that much. I'll take a little bit less. But it's Mm -hmm. like he's already destroyed his credibility by putting all these demands on the table. Right. And also, in 2016 or 2015, 2014, whenever all these things are happening, I I get that you want your record expunged, but go for what is really important and say, I want to meet Betty White or something. Totally. Because you, who could have known that we did not have that much time left with her? Why are you going to, yeah, why are you going to waste it on Ray Liotta? Oh, I know. You know, use it on something valuable, sir. Mm-hmm. But like, it's just awful. Like sitting there and being like, my criminal record, which I did to myself. No, we did not. No, he did not. The government <laughs> did it to him. Let's not get it twisted. It yeah. Because his whole thing was like, the government needs to do the right thing. The government needs to do the right thing. If I'm going to help the government, then the government needs to help me. He never considered Britney's family in any of this. And that's who you're helping, not helping the government. Absolutely. And it's so crazy to me that even after Britney's mom, Jean, sent him a message being like, please, please, please do this for us. He still didn't consider them. Not one time. It didn't move him in any way, shape or form. He is like legitimately the fucking Grinch. Mm hmm. His heart never grew three sizes. And it's so, it's so grabby and so selfish. Like, well, I could not live with myself. I just could not live with myself to be like, well, I mean, I'm not getting anything out of this. So why should I do it? No. What? Yeah. What about that's a total lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. Even if I don't get anything out of it, that is the absolute right thing to do is to come forward with information that I know about a murder. It's one thing if you fear for your life and you need some protection or something like that. Like that's one thing. Maybe there are some hoops you need to jump through to get the information, but whatever. But that's not what's happening here. He just wants what he wants. Mm -hmm. I did all these things and I want them to be totally wiped from my record. I want a clean slate. Even though you, in fact, broke the law multiple times in multiple different ways mm-hmm. because of who you are, or the things that you did, actions that you made. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And I don't know his entire arrest history. Like, I don't know everything he's been arrested for. I know that he had that, you know, the drug charge. And, you know, that's a whole other issue with how we treat, you know, drug charges and stuff like that. But, um, it's still, you can still do the right thing even if you disagree with your punishment or your sentence or whatever. Because again, this is not, you're not doing it for the government. You're doing it for the family of a girl who's been murdered. And let's be honest, there have been uh, so many people 
who have gotten way heavier sentences for drug-related crimes, he was honestly pretty lucky to be out on parole. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's right, um, right. how yeah. harsh those laws are or whatever, but the fact of the matter is there are people who are serving damn near life because of drug charges. So, yes. So let's count our blessings, girlfriend. And also, I feel like he watched Armageddon too many times because when they were having to be sent to the asteroid to save the world, they were like, I want to stay in the Oval Office at the White House. I want all of my unpaid parking tickets um, to go away. And I don't want to pay taxes ever again. And they were like, Okay, Um, because they were, again, saving the world and possibly losing their lives. And he was like, great, ask and you shall receive. Yeah, that's not, yeah, like, come on, dude. Not the same, man. It's not the same. So anyway, (sighs) Call was arrested and charged in 2011 for his sixth OWI, which is operating while intoxicated. And in 2016, he was again arrested, charged and found guilty of his seventh OWI. At what point is it less expensive to put him in jail than it is to put him in rehab? Yeah. Let's get this man some help. 100%. I mean, seven. That's a lot of times to make the same mistake. Yeah. He obviously, he needs help. (laughs) I just, 100%. Absolutely. He was incarcerated at the Oshkosh. I love the name Oshkosh. Um, I know, right? <laughs> Oshkosh, my gosh. He was incarcerated at the Oshkosh Correctional Center. And in 2016, he admitted to being in Brittany's home on the day she was killed. But he said that he was not the person who killed her. In 2018, at the 10-year anniversary of Brittany's death, her parents sat down for an interview. And when asked how often they think of that day, her father said every day, every single day. Can we stop asking people that in an interview like I know that this is the 10-year anniversary of her death and we're trying to get the story back out there and that's important because maybe somebody who sees this will say I know something and I didn't realize I knew something or I didn't realize it was important and all of those things but can we stop being like how often do you think of the day your daughter was murdered well and hear me out I'm being facetious and not silly but hopefully you know what I mean how does how's that supposed to make somebody feel when you're like hey your daughter was murdered. How do you feel? Like, it's just, that's, it's not, it's not funny. It's not getting a good story. It's not, it's insensitive and it's wrong. It's and, exploiting the emotion that they're trying to elicit. Well, absolutely. And I feel like if they, if you, if, if they want to say, I think about this every day, every moment when I wake up, I think that, okay, yes. If they offer that information, by all means, quit asking. because it's hurtful. And like you said, it's yeah. exploitative. Like it's, yeah, it's just awful. But then her mom told the interviewer that she thought the case would be solved right away and that they did not even consider that they'd be here 10 years later. So the DNA that was tested in 2011 concluded that David Call was, quote, included as a possible contributor, but was unable to be entered into CODIS as it wasn't eligible. But then in 2014, the FBI guidelines had changed and it was entered then. In 2017, like so many years, it just the wheels turn so slowly. 
Uh, the police forwarded the DNA to a Pittsburgh company, Cybergenetics, and in 2018, a report stated that a DNA match from Brittany's right sleeve and David Call was, quote, 226,000 times more probable than a coincidental match to an unrelated Caucasian person. On April 12th, 2019, the letter that was sent to police back in 2009 was sent to the crime lab for DNA analysis, and the DNA was a match to David Call. Hmm. He sent the letter. What, what are we doing there? In March of 2020, David Call was charged with first-degree intentional homicide and pleaded not guilty in December of 2020. A judge set a cash bond of a million dollars for Call. There was a preliminary hearing in March of 2021, and an order for a competency exam was sent. In June of 2021, he was found to be competent to stand trial, and Brittany's parents and aunt attended via video because dead in the center of COVID here. Mm -hmm. um, throughout 2022, trial and motion hearing dates were being set and discussed. So... On October 27th of 2022, David Call confessed to the murder of Brittany Zimmerman. According to Ben Gonring, what were you going to I'm say? sorry. I'm just shocked that at this point, not December or October of 2022, but December of 2020, when he's pleading not guilty, I feel bad, but the jig is up. Like, I think we all know it was you because it's it's highly I mean, like it's a one in a million chance that it was somebody else. Right. Like all right. signs point to you. Yeah. But to go on and be like, nope, I didn't do it. I did not do it. I did not do it. I didn't do it. And then finally being like, all right, I did it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's very like <laughs> Casey Anthony walking the police officers through Universal Studios and then being like, all right, you got me. I don't work here. And they're like, exactly know that. Yeah. Like, figured obviously. that out about 25 minutes ago when we got here. So yeah, exactly. Like, so one of Call's attorneys, uh, Ben Gonring said that Call decided to confess after several meetings, quote, and really a lot of soul searching from David. He let go of a secret that he'd been keeping for 14 and a half years. <laughs> Gonring also said that Call didn't intend to harm anyone and he was just running a scheme. And Call said that Brittany was kind. He said that Call had stepped into her bathroom and noticed that she was on the phone and he got scared and paranoid. So he still doesn't really give us, did he, he kicked her door down mm -hmm. and she obviously ran to the bathroom to call 911. Well, no shit. She was on the phone. A locked security door. Like, not that any other door being kicked down would be less aggressive or something, but he really went to a lot of lengths he tried to get, to get, get that house. door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she obviously did not want that to happen. The door was locked. She was trying to get away from him, and he broke it down. Mm -hmm. And then he sees that she's on the phone. Of course she is. She's on the phone with 911 because somebody's breaking into her home. I just love how the in these kinds of situations, he's obviously not taking any kind of responsibility because he was like, well, what was I supposed to do? I mean, she's on the phone. Now I'm scared and paranoid. I have if to do something. If she hadn't been on the phone, I mean, you know, if she hadn't called 911, then everything would have been copacetic. I could have just, right. like, again, there's so many other options, obviously. Don't break into her house, but like you walk into the house and she's on the phone, hightail it the fuck out of there. 
Yeah. I mean, if there you're gone, are, they can't find you. Like, there's so many points during all of this where it could be like, okay, there's there's an opportunity for you to not have gone, you know, here's your exit. Okay, here's your exit. Yeah. Here's this. No, he didn't do but, it. Right, but his comfort or discomfort with being caught was more important than this woman's life. Absolutely. What gives you the right? Absolutely. What gives you the right to her $40 that you wanted to get from her? Right. What gives you the right to walk into her home, anybody's home, without being invited in, and now you've kicked down the door? I mean, she was right to be terrified. Mm-hmm. It's just awful. And he's just like, well, I mean, I was scared. What was I supposed to do? Exactly. Fuck off with that. Yeah. Um, so he finally entered a guilty plea and he was sentenced to life in prison. And the defense requested that he be sentenced immediately and begin a sentence right away so that he could be transferred to the Dodge Correctional Institution where he would be able to receive better medical treatment for his health issues. Um, and there will be a hearing on January 12th, 2023 to determine if he will ever become eligible for parole. Brittany's aunt, Kimberly Heeg, said of this, quote, I think it takes a lot of audacity for someone in custody to request a transfer from the county jail to state prison because he thinks he'll get better medical care after he has stripped my family of an incredibly loving and amazing human who wanted to do nothing but good things in this world. I can understand that sentiment 100%. Yeah. And she also said, quote, we as a family have nothing but pain. We have nothing but daily reminders and we have nothing but torture for 14 and a half years where he did his soul searching to decide to come clean. Um, He did not object to call starting his life sentence right away, but called the reasoning, quote, nothing short of obnoxious. I'm obnoxious. That's (laughs) David Call. Yeah, exactly. Both the prosecution and defense as part of Call's plea deal are recommending him to be eligible for extended supervision after 20 years of incarceration at the hearing in January. I don't like that. I don't either. Is that because, so he was 56 at the time of the agreement and he would be 76 years old at the time of the potential releases. Are we thinking that he's phased out of crime at this point or? Yeah, I know there are plenty of people who age out of crime, but there are, uh, Robert Durst did not. Yeah. I mean, 76 is, it's up there, but I, uh, Dorothea Puente. I mean, if he's 76 and he's feeble and can't get around by himself and stuff, maybe, but my concern is there's more, there's a lot of things wrapped into this. Is he receiving help in any way mental health care um is he receiving some sort of like recovery treatment program you know there's a lot of things that were wrapped into his crime yeah and if he's not receiving help for those things and you put him out on his ass at 76 years old with no job, nowhere to stay, nothing to do, right in the same place where he used to buy drugs on the street. You're just, you're setting him up for failure too. And I don't, I'm not saying that he deserves all of these things, but parole indicates rehabilitation. 
what rehabilitation steps are we taking? And if we're not going to take any, then, then like you said, it's received, setting him up for failure. Yeah. And, and possibly setting up other people for being in danger. I mean, yeah. Being an ex victim of whatever crime that he could possibly commit. Yeah. Because if he doesn't have a means of making money after this, he, he I mean, it's likely that he would resort to stealing because what else other option does he have? Nobody's going to want to hire him. Like, you know, there's just like, what are we doing here? Yes, absolutely. And I can completely understand her family, specifically her aunt, who who has made the most statements that I've heard of um, or have heard. But for her to say, well, and I'm paraphrasing and also maybe taking some liberties here, but that he, because according from what I can tell that she how she feels and I don't blame her and kind of agree David call cares about David call mm-hmm. he's looking out for himself number one that's it so he's like I need amazing better health care than I would get just anywhere and also I want some semblance of a life after this but he didn't give Brittany the opportunity for either of those no. not even a little bit for $40. For $40. For $40. And that's why, like, sometimes you'll hear, you know, in trials, it's like, well, it, what? This person was going to get $20 off of this person? That's not enough motive to kill somebody. $1,000 isn't enough motive. $500,000 isn't enough motive in the grand scheme of things. No, it's not. But people have been killed for less. This was for well, and that's, $40. I think that with that, thinking in mind, if you're going to use that argument, yeah, it might not be enough for the average person or you and you or me, but that doesn't mean it's not enough for whoever. Somebody who has nothing left to lose. Somebody who she is standing in the way in his mind of him going back to jail or not. And he's simply not going to let that happen. Right. I mean, uh, the judge did say though, that she wants to ensure that everyone affected by Britney's death will have the opportunity to make a statement before making her final ruling in that regard. That's all we can hope for and, um, and get, I guess. But so the dispatcher who received Britney's 911 call, we told you we were going to come back to the 911 call and here we are. The dispatcher who received it did not dispatch police to her home because she claimed to have not heard anything on the line. And the dispatcher also did not immediately or accurately inform the police department about the call after Brittany's body was found. The 911 call center refused, or the 911 center, excuse me, refused to release the audio of Brittany's call, stating that the police department said that it would impair the investigation, according to the director, Joe Norwick. However, The Madison Police Department disputes this, saying that it was Norwick's way of not owning up to his department's mistakes. The dispatcher claimed to have not heard anything on the line, and when a second call was placed, there was a hang-up. Norwick said of this, quote, under the current policy, if dispatchers call, answer a 911 call and don't hear a voice on the other end of the call or are unable to determine if there's an emergency, the dispatcher calls that number back. He added, though, that the police are only automatically sent if the call came from a landline and not a cell phone. Okay, we don't even have a landline. Right. I'm hoping and praying. I'm I'm sure that has changed now. But even in 2008, 
I guess we had a landline in 2008. But yeah, a lot of people had cell phones. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying that there were no landlines to be seen or heard of, but a lot of people had cell phones. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the beauty of having a cell phone because if you're, I don't know, in a certain part of your house or whatever, I mean, that's the only phone I would use. I wouldn't use the landline unless absolutely necessary. Or my God, what if you were on the street and someone attacks you? You're not allowed to call 911? They're not going to send anybody? Nope. How are you supposed to get to a landline? Yeah, exactly. I know cords can reach, but not that far. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So in May of 2008, the journal Sentinel, the Wisconsin State Journal, WTMJ-TV, and Madison-based WFSC-TV, I was hoping and praying that I got that one, sued to get records related to Britney's 911 call. The media attorneys argued that the public had the right to the records because it would show whether the Dane County 911 Center was properly properly responding to calls from citizens in life or death emergencies. A prosecutor for the city of Madison said in court, quote, there's no one in this court who has listened to this tape who ever wants to listen to it again. It has been said that you can hear screaming on Britney's end of the 911 call that Judge I did Rich- also, I think there's an article that talks about this where like the actual dispatcher who took the call had to listen back to this call and was visibly shaken. So it, it seems like there's a video. What is that guy's name? I'm, we'll, we have, we'll have it linked. Um, it's brain scratch is, it was at the top. John Lord, Lorden, maybe. Uh, Lord or something. Yeah. He he suggested possibly, surely there was some kind of a breakdown somewhere. Maybe her headphone wasn't picking up the sound. Maybe there was a lag in the service. You know, like Tori and I are recording this on Zoom. We use backup recordings and things like that. But to see each other, we're using Zoom. There are some things that she says that are part of the script that I don't hear because there's a lag. And I just assume she said them. Like... You know, so I, I understand that there there had to have been, you know, he says this is a 20 year veteran of the dispatch center. She's never had any disciplinary actions taken against her before. She never had any complaints filed against her. As far as we can tell, it seems like there was some sort of a breakdown there where she just. Because surely right. she didn't hear that and just hang it up. I mean, you know, right. but she didn't follow protocol to call that number back. Right. Absolutely. Or furthermore, report it after Brittany's body mm-hmm. was found. So are we understaffed? And she's trying to take because she took the second call. Then she went to the third call. Then she didn't remember to call back the second one. But she didn't remember to call back the first one. Well, the first one was somebody being murdered in the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, so is she having to take so many calls that, you know, she just can't keep up? Like, I mean, yeah. that's a possibility. Like, there's something that needs to be done. Absolutely. 100%. Judge Richard Neese called the call clumsy, but that it did contain significant information to finding Britney's killer and releasing it could jeopardize the investigation. Since dispatch has changed and now someone will make contact with the caller no matter what the call is. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like they've changed it to like, if you're not sure, then you call back. If you're not Absolutely. sure, dispatch somebody. Like if 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 there's any question about it, it goes. Like, well, and I can understand that and I'm sure I think that that's the best way to handle it because if you if you get a phone call to 911 and there you don't hear anything on the other line. There are a couple options there, right? It could be 
somebody who made a mistake, rolled over on their phone, called it, their kid called it, whatever, you know, it could just be an accidental thing. Could also be somebody who is incapable of voicing the the threat, the concern, the act, violent act, the whatever. So I would right. think because this is not a, a random call center for just anything, this is an emergency line that people use for emergencies. You might, you have to look into that. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad that this has changed now. I ha- just hate, it's like, I was just going to say, we've heard of cases where like, you know, people have called in, like you're pointing out where they've called in and just had 911 on the line. But have you, if they said, Hey, I'm on the phone with 911, like whoever is there would know that. Like they have to be quiet because they're either trying not to be found or they don't want to let their attacker know that they're on the phone with 911. Like, well, absolutely. There's so many things. Yeah. And if you can't speak and say it and you need help, 911 has to be on the line, right? To be able to track you and trace you to go to the place where you are. Yeah, you can't just be like, well, not say anything. Bye, you're lost. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And I don't know. I just, I feel like it reminds me a lot of other cases that we've talked about where it's like, well, how many people have to have to lose their lives before action is taken and they see that this is a problem and we got to fix it. Right. Exactly. How many times do, you know, it's yeah. just sad. It is. But um, pause for Brittany is a walk and run in memory of Brittany. The proceeds benefit the Marshfield area pet shelter. And the event is held every year on the Saturday of Mother's Day weekend. And the next event will be on Saturday, May 13th, 2023 at the Wildwood Park and Zoo. And the family also has a scholarship for Brittany that is given to a senior from Marshfield High School that is planning to attend the University of Wisconsin-Madison to pursue a medical degree. It is called the Brittany Zimmerman Memorial Scholarship. Mm, What a sweet way to honor her memory. I know. Oh, you guys, that's a rough one. It's it's really scary to think that you could be on the phone with 911 and something happen. And and it's like literally at every turn where there could be a breakdown, there was a breakdown. Yeah. It wasn't registered as an emergency. Nobody was dispatched. It was logged improperly. I think that there is some responsibility that the call taker has to bear there, obviously. But I also do think that we're making we're making the steps that need to should have been made, need to be made um, to making it better. But I hope that because we talked about we talk about the ripple effect in victims, and I can't imagine what that call taker has had to endure because of a mistake that she possibly unknowingly made or it was just an accident or it was something outside of her control. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think that she did some things after that that didn't follow protocol and that's wrong. But um, I just hope Mm -hmm. that everyone involved in this case can heal as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Because I don't think, based on what I've heard about Brittany, I don't think that she would want people to be I don't think she would want anybody to be sad. I mean, she was just an angel. Yeah, definitely. And it's also like, 
a time, you know, to take a look at the environment that these people have absolutely critically important jobs. Yes, absolutely. So are we giving them the environment that they need and the amount of support that they need to effectively handle the call load that they have to take? Like, absolutely. It all has to be, you know, we can't set them up for failure either. Absolutely. And again, I do think that is incredibly sad and so unfair that it took this to make somebody be like, let's, let's take a hard look at this. But, um, if there ever was anything resembling close to a silver lining, it's that they are taking steps and have taken steps to change it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think. Absolutely. But thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We love you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. And we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.